Hello. Today we are back with another episode of Global.Science. I am Lev Hordisky. And I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. And so, Fabia, what was your college classroom experience like? Because you are not an American. Well, you are an American now. But you I am an American now. I am an American now, but I was not when I was in college. Um, and my college experience was from uh, the mid 90s in, in Italy. And uh, the experience was primarily that the students are down low, professors are up high, and the students are supposed to shut up and listen. And so everything was uh, lecture based. And there wasn't a lot of interaction uh, in those days. Uh, nothing like questions or you know group activities. Uh, it was basically lectures and sometimes very very long lectures. My inorganic chemistry lecture, three hour long, twice a week. That was not a fun one. Oh, that sounds that sounds thrilling. But you weren't even allowed to ask questions. We were technically allowed, but in practice, nobody did because we were all terrified by our professors. And so, especially in the larger lectures. And so we would just ask questions um, in when we got to our fourth or fifth year uh, in when a much smaller class, but otherwise classes were way too big. So basically, no, you just sit and listen. How big were your classes? Um, it depended a bit, but probably between two and three hundred students uh, in the lower level classes, and then upper level classes hovered around the fifty, give or take. So they there were no classes that were really small, like you know 10, 15, 20, like I've seen here in the U.S. At least at Oakland University, which is where I am. Um, but 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 I was lucky because I was in a relatively smaller university. Um, but other universities like uh, Rome has uh, three different universities, and uh, the first one that was born and the biggest one had classes of a thousand or a thousand five hundred students uh, in the first year. So those are you barely know who your professor is at that point. So yeah. So did you hold your classes uh, then in the Coliseum? <laughs> Now, if I could have a pet lion, I would have been fine with that. But without a pet lion, no, we didn't do that. <laughs> so I'm thinking about my uh, college, uh, my college experience, and I remember, um, I remember the transition from high school to college. And the transition from high school to college was we did some group activities in high school, and then in college we just sat in lectures and listened and took notes. And to me. My first impression of that was, oh, this feels very adult. This feels very professional. And so I got very used to the idea that in the college setting, this is the way it's supposed to work. And if you don't understand it, that's on you. Um, so that was my college experience. Then when I went to graduate school and I was TAing an earth science course, um, I got a whole bunch of in-class activities to do, which to me just struck me as really weird. Like, why would you do this in a college class? A college class is you're an adult, you are professional now, you should be able to get all your information out of a lecture. Why would you need to be doing worksheets and group work and things like that? And it, and it struck me just as being really weird at the college setting to be doing that. But I did it because that was the, the, the teaching assignment. And I was kind of surprised that it worked and it worked a lot better than the lectures. And as a teacher, I had more fun implementing that. 
And so that really stuck in my mind uh, that you can actually do things in a, in a college classroom other than lecture. And back in like the early 2000s, to me, that was a revelation. I think to a lot of people, it was a revelation. So, um, so has the conversation in Italy moved in that direction yet or not quite so much? Um, not quite so much. I think mostly because it's, um, it's a question of, you know, kind of losing the older generation of uh, teachers, I guess, <laughs> that are used to teaching in a very specific way. Um, and in part, it's also a question of uh, tools that are available. Um, there are many activities that don't necessarily require uh, particular tools, but other activities do. Like, for example, if you are in uh, a computer lab and you want the students to work on a certain activity, you need to have every student with a computer, which may or may not be the case depending on the location of the student and, you know, the uh, the structure of the university, the structure of the classrooms and so on. So I think there is still a lot of variability around the world um, on uh, this idea of active learning, getting the students actually involved in their learning process instead of being passive and just listening. And so, so yeah, but I always found the idea of active learning interesting, difficult to implement from an instructor perspective because it requires, believe it or not, I think much more preparation than just a lecture um, because you have to not only predict what you are going to say, but predict how the audience is going to react so that you can help them better. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it takes uh, skills to be able to do, uh, to do this kind of active learning teaching and I, um, I, I think it's valuable, but uh, there is still a lot, a big conversation that is going on around it, I think. I think we have a guest today who can help us with that conversation. Yes, we do. So our guest today is a colleague of mine, Dr. Sarah Hosh. Um, she is a full-time teaching faculty at Oakland University and in my department, which is the Department of Biological Sciences. And I, um, well, I met uh, Sarah when I first joined Oakland University, and I know that she has always been my North Star. Every time I had to figure out how to teach something, I would go to Sarah to ask suggestions because she's really, really good at what she does. And so, Sarah, thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and what kind of courses you teach? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yes, I have been teaching. I actually just celebrated my 14th year anniversary at Oakland University, where I have been teaching uh, biology courses. And actually, I've taught about eight different courses now, uh, anywhere from the lower level courses at the 1000 level, introductory biology, up to the senior capstone uh, courses. My degree is actually in biochemistry, so I um, do teach biochemistry courses. And actually, I did my PhD at the University of Minnesota, which is one of the big universities that does now have a very amazing uh, rooms that were built just for undergraduate um, active learning, which was really cool. So they're one of the first universities to, to make some efforts in that area, which was really cool. Very nice. So can you explain to our audience who may not be familiar with the concept of active learning, what exactly is it? Because it's a, it's a broad term, it could be a broad term. 
Right, yeah. So when we talk about active learning, we're really talking about anything that gets students away from a passive engagement in the material. So it can be from uh, engaging in uh, writing activities to communication activities with others to uh, really even presenting and talking about the material in a way that might engage them with something outside of the standard concept. So tying it to sort of real life type of uh, ideas or uh, uh, activities. Um, in terms of techniques in the classroom, we use lots of wide range types of techniques where, again, we can do this through um, communi oral communication, written communication, group work, uh, even on an individual level. But usually we try to do this in a group context. So how do you think active learning is helping students um, achieve basically the goals that they have, which of course, uh, from a student perspective is getting an A in the class, obviously. Um, but from our perspective is actually helping them learn the material and learn how to use the material um, so that it helps them in uh, you know, upper level classes or even just in their career in general. Yeah, good question. So I will say that my uh, experience is much like yours in college. In fact, I would say I was a terrible student. I got good <laughs> grades, but I slept a lot during classes or I tried to hide the fact that I was sleeping or falling asleep in classes, or I took a lot of notes and doodles. Um, so for me, sitting in lectures was never the way I learned science. and. Intuitively, when I began teaching, which again wasn't what I was trained for, right? I was trained to do science. Everything I knew was about doing science or learning on my own with the material in labs or um, actively. I like to draw pictures. That was just how I learned. So when I came to the classroom, I think it was a lot easier for me to start teaching these tools to students as well, because uh, for me, I understood that. There are lots of different ways to approach learning that material. When, when we think about what we want out of our students, uh, the main thing that I think about isn't necessarily, I want them to know um, how to draw a Punnett square. It's actually, which is in genetics, uh, we actually really want them to come out with critical thinking skills. We want them to learn how to talk to one another. We learn, want them to uh, apply information uh, to recognize um, really what they know and they don't know so that as they move up in upper level classes, they can use those skills for the material that is much more uh, difficult than maybe at the introductory level. So a lot of the active learning really is geared towards that. It's, it's almost tricking students into learning the biology at the same time as really gaining these skills that maybe they didn't even know that they were missing. And that's something I've noticed, uh, especially when talking with overseas colleagues, there's a huge focus. And I even fall into this trap myself when I'm designing course materials, that there's such a desire to get the content knowledge across that um, a lot of the a lot of the critical thinking skills almost become an afterthought. And I found that it becomes easier to design active learning materials once you start thinking about what are the skills I want them to learn 
and then how I can use um, the topic that we're actually studying now to teach those skills. Right, so a lot of people would call that uh, backwards design where you are coming up with your outcomes, student learning outcomes, and then kind of deciding, designing those types of activities that may help you reach those student learning outcomes. And this is really hard for new faculty because you feel like you're given a textbook and hey, you are supposed to teach your students this book. And in reality, that's not really what we want them to be doing. And it is a different approach to uh, your delivery of content because you're not actually delivering content in a lecture format. The students are learning the content as they are working through uh, their activities uh, that you, you've assigned for them in this active learning environment. So since you taught so many different classes uh, while at, at OU, um, can you tell us a little bit more of the strategies that you have used to implement these active learning uh, activities based on uh, the topic, I assume, based on the outcome, based on the size of the class. I assume all of these factors uh, uh, come into play when you're actually designing your, your lecture. And I've, I've seen you prepare your lecture. You spend a lot of time preparing them. So yeah. I know it's an intense <laughs> amount of work. <laughs> Yeah, so in the intro classes, we can have a little more than 100 students. And a lot of uh, the activities that I try to implement are, um, are fall into two categories, things that really anyone can do. Uh, I use clicker, quote unquote, clicker questions. Uh, so an audio response system where uh, they're giving higher level, um, maybe more application-based questions or analyzing a piece of data or a, a case study. And then they're asked to get into groups or pairs even and talk about those questions and then answer them. And then we walk through the strategy as to how you might go about answering that question if they did miss it. That's something really anyone can do with any size classroom. Uh, I also have other types of activities where it's really best if you have uh, some learning assistance or te uh, teaching assistance, depending on the model that's at your university. And then you can get down to more of uh, a ratio of one uh, learning assistant or instructor to uh, you know, maybe three groups or so uh, of five students. And that way um, we can have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with students while they're working through a larger problem sets that they might be doing. One example would be, um, and I borrowed some of these from places like Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, their biointeractive uh, content has a lot of really great resources. Some of those are uh, can be used in, um, at the high school level, and then they can also be uh, really modified to be used at the college level as well. And we've done one where it's really looking at uh, what genes are oncogenes and tumor suppressors and mapping them to uh, chromosomes and it's based on actual data that was collected. And so that's a real fun one to do that students get to learn about individual genes in their groups and then they actually find them on a chromosome. They learn about where in our genome we can find tumor suppressors and oncogenes and how those actually work. What, what's the actual function of those gene products and why they might be involved in causing cancer. And 
So that gives them a hands-on type of flavor for, you know, what it would actually be like to gather that information and analyze it on more of a large scale, which um, is, is something really unique. And then they can learn at the same time, all of the key concepts associated with cancer. What is a tumor suppressor? What is an aquagene? Where are they found in the chromosomes? Uh, a little bit about chromosomal structure and things like that. Inheritance as well. So those are two examples of a lower kind of lower level classroom uh, activity. I do have upper level classes too. And in my uh, capstone class, it's a communication-based class. I uh, run Socratic seminars that are led by students and that is uh, really engaging for them. They are responsible for designing the topics and the questions and then the rest of the class is involved in a Socratic seminar that I kind of kind of monitor uh, and boy, I don't know, I've done, I've done so many different assignments and activities in that class, anywhere from designing info, infographics for, um, for Lyme's disease <laughs> to um, having them figure out what type of company they might design to, in order to ensure that all uh, the distribution of cell culture materials are, um, are equivalent across the board and how much they might charge for materials to be used in a lab, get a little flavor for business. So I don't know, I try a wide range of things. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's something important about active learning. <laughs> That's something that I've uh, figured out when doing the uh, creating active learning activities that often it doesn't work the first time. And I found I've often had to work with learning designers and engineers uh, like computer engineers or program uh, programmers uh, who design some of the tools that we use. And they really don't like that ambivalence that you don't understand how this is going to work until it actually works. So have you found uh, is there advice you would give to people who are doing this for the first time, uh, just common pitfalls to avoid and uh, what they can expect in that iteration process? Because it is an iteration process. I think one of the big things that, that happens is it can be overwhelming, especially if there's people that don't understand the directions. Clarity and directions is definitely uh, one area to make sure that you consider ahead of time and then maybe try out before getting into the classroom. Having help is also really important. Um, we're seeing examples. We've actually videotaped one of these in-class activities just to give to other faculty so they can say, see how it actually runs in the classroom. Uh, also knowing your time and managing your time. Uh, it's really hard to gauge how long it might take students to complete an assignment. And sometimes one group of students, it might take a lot shorter time than uh, another group of students, uh, especially so when you're looking at analysis. Yeah. So there is uh, an aspect of classroom management that needs to be taken into account when going into an, an active learning type of, uh, of teaching. And like you said at the beginning, Sarah, in most cases, uh, PhDs uh, are not trained uh, to do this kind of work. And so we kind of have to learn it on the job. <laughs> Yeah, even when I've done things that we really should be pretty good at, where I assign maybe uh, 
figures from a journal article for students to analyze, all of a sudden to think to myself, oh, these are, these are senior level students, but they've actually never read primary literature before in many cases. And all of a sudden, okay, that means now I have to add on another class or another something before that to make sure that they're prepared and they have that prior knowledge. I've done that with a lot of assignments where um, I found that it flopped because they didn't have, they came in blind. They didn't do the reading beforehand. So we'll assign pre-assignments, things like that, to kind of ensure that they were all on the same page when they walk in that day to be able to do whatever it is that you're doing. That's really, really important. So you need an active learning activity to prepare them for their, for their active learning activity. <laughs> A little. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I've done lately is also uh, try to get buy-in at the beginning of class. We, I really work hard on saying, hey, listen, guys, uh, I get it. This is hard. Like it's, it's, it's unusual. You may not be comfortable with this. Uh, you may not like talking to your peers or you may not know anyone because you, you know, you, you're, this is your first semester, um, but we're, we're doing this for a reason and the learning, the data tells us this is how you learn best. And I think if you can get that buy-in early, uh, the students will be a lot more receptive and they're a lot more forgiving then when things don't always go exactly how you plan it to go. Yeah, I've read that their research studies uh, say basically students feel like they learn less through active learning, even though it is more effective, because you often have to cover fewer topics. And I think that's the thing that gets a lot of uh, people who first start moving into active learning. You can't cover as many topics because you have to move slower because the students are discovering. You're not just shoving content into their air holes. Right. I think the hope then is that the retention of that subset of, of uh, topics, as well as the new skills they've gained, is what's going to carry them on in the next classes. So that's really hard to test, right, to come back and you'd have to then look at those same populations of students after they've had a few other classes and say, well, now how did you, you know, how well did you uh, retain that and how well did you do in those classes? Because that's where I think we see those, those gains. It's always in the following class and not, not in student satisfaction. Students often aren't satisfied in an active learning class because they end up getting frustrated and frustration is an important, I think, skill to, it's an important feeling to get when, when learning, not, not too much frustration where you just disengage, but frustration, I tell my students, it's a way of, uh, it's like your body being sore after a good workout. It means that right. something is changing. And students sometimes have a hard time uh, understanding that. Um, so, oh, go ahead. And, and it's mostly because we don't really teach them that, that right? We don't, we don't tell them often that it's okay to not understand something, to be confused, to be frustrated, because they are venturing outside of their comfort zone. And that's exactly what active learning is supposed to do. It's a lot easier to just stand back and listen and doodle to try not to fall asleep, which I think we all did. <laughs> just a few times. <laughs> Rather than actually engage. So uh, so I think I agree with you, with what you said, Sarah, that uh, being upfront and honest with the students at the beginning saying, look, this is going to be difficult and you are going to get frustrated and it's okay. We all get frustrated when we learn something that we don't know. And, and it's actually, it actually means that you're, that you're learning whether you believe it or not. 
So we were talking before we uh, started recording that you work on um, gateway courses and helping bridge gaps in gateway courses. And I think that's an interesting topic I think we want to uh, uh, tackle because I know definitely when I was in college, we had the weed out courses that were just designed to make people miserable and flush them out of the system. And so you would never even think of putting an active learning course in there or active learning activity in there because you wouldn't want to make it fun because then people might stay. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that whole idea of the instructor coming in and saying, look to your right, look to your left. You know, at least only one of you out of the three will be left at the end of the semester. And we really, we, it's a really negative uh, attitude to an environment for students to learn in. And we know students don't learn best when they don't feel supported. We wanna create not just these activities, but also a learning environment that is supportive of their learning. And uh, one of the ways that we do this in the gateway courses is say, okay, well, how can we make sure that students are more successful? And if they are, then they're more likely to stick around their first year. They're most likely to, more likely to stay in the sciences if they're successful in that class. For us, we have prerequisites. Right, so if they don't have a specific grade, they can actually move on in uh, their major. The balance between ensuring they have the proper background to be successful in the next course, but also that they can continue to move towards, you know, their degree completion in a timely fashion. So there are, there are equity issues involved here as well, because I know this was something when I was at Arizona State University, we talked about a lot and definitely in the group that I was with, um, we didn't like the idea of creating a weed out course because often you're weeding out people who may not have the skills they need to move on uh, simply because they came through a system that didn't provide them those skills. They're perfectly capable of doing it, but because they don't have the right background, they end up getting flushed out of a system that they would have done very well in if they had gotten those skills potentially in that weed out course instead of being penalized for not walking in with that skill. Yeah, that's, that's definitely uh, an issue for us here too. And one of the things that, uh, that I found in, uh, in one of my projects working with the gateway class is that some of the active learning, uh, as well as sort of the, these philosophical changes of the classroom environment, one of the results of this was that we uh, saw a large decrease in the gap in success between underrepresented minorities and non-underrepresented minorities. And we cut that gap in, in half. It was a pretty substantial difference in the percentage of students that uh, were then um, not earning a D and an F failing or uh, a withdrawal or an incomplete. And so we were really proud of that. Um, and that was over several semesters that we looked at that. and. That says that whatever these methods are that we're doing, we're able to retain and help some of those students that may have um, previously fallen through the cracks because of the inexperience maybe with active learning or um, not knowing how to study or prepare properly and giving them those tools in the classroom, then hopefully you know, that'll carry on through all of their courses as well. 
And this is especially important in the sciences because one of the conversations that is happening a lot in the sciences is to increase the diversity of scientists in general um, so that it becomes a more um, inclusive um, uh, field. And, and this is across pretty much all the sciences. And so um, kind of looking into these gateway courses and uh, uh, modernizing them in the way they are taught uh, uh, serves this purpose as well. Yeah, I have huge hopes that if we increase active learning, especially in gateway courses or early courses in uh, STEM classes, that, that will really uh, improve outcomes and increase diversity in undergrad levels. And hopefully that will then carry to graduate levels and um, careers for all people in science. All right, excellent. I think that's a great place to uh, end. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. This was uh, really informative, especially in uh, introducing people to active learning and what it is. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sarah. So Fabia, what did you learn uh, this time around? That I really need to step up on my teaching because I've known it before because Sarah was, like I said, the, the person that I always went to when I had the questions about teaching. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's good to see that there are all these different activities happening and that there are multiple uh, faculty that are involved in it at different levels. But you had some experience trying to um, recruit uh, faculty in other countries to do active learning lab, right? Yes, it's quite difficult. When I was in Indonesia, I did a seminar on active learning. And um, when we did their homework, which was to put together an active learning activity for the following week, I just got lectures in return. And it, it was very difficult to switch that mindset. And that was something we were going to work on, but I had to leave because of the pandemic and everything got shut down. And so we ended up in a place where in some of these places you need a lot more discussions. What you needed was a visible demonstration, which I was never able to do because I was only there for a month. Um, but even in uh, working with my colleagues in Brazil, we did an active learning experience in the fall. Um, with the students and even my colleagues who are more versed in this had difficulty understanding how to implement a complex uh, activity in the class. Um, and so there's, there's acknowledgement that this is a better way of doing things, but without the actual in-class demos where teachers can see, I, I found it difficult to uh, get traction in those international classrooms. I kind of think back to um, an evaluation I got on one of my uh, teaching portfolios in graduate school that I submitted for an award where I, I, I set out point blank that um, I want students to walk away with various skills and critical thinking skills, how to use Excel and various tools, even if they don't become a geologist, because most of the students in our class are not going to become geologists. And I got penalized for saying that, saying, no, this is our introductory geology course. Our goal is to encourage and really focus on the five or six people from this hundred person class that are going to become a geologist and everyone else, we don't worry about them because they're not staying around. And I think that attitude is still there in, in large parts of the world. And it's going to take, I think, a long time to uh, move past it. 
but I think getting some of these uh, demos uh, can really help move that process. Yeah, and, and I think also um, favoring the connection between the sciences and between the sciences and non-sciences, uh, um, uh, science, scientific fields, like for example, with business or with the liberal arts, it, it helps in showing students that even if they are in a science uh, major, um, and they may not want to become scientists, the skills that they are earning are applicable no matter what they do. And that is valuable for the students and is valuable for the teachers to, to always keep in mind as well. Yeah, the, the example I could think of in uh, just the applicability of that skill as I'm thinking back to a Ukrainian seminar I did in, in Ukraine right before the pandemic, where I was showing teachers a lesson I built that was basically a guessing game because when I originally taught distances in space, I had students calculate how long it would take to get to various planets and various stars at various speeds. And it just became a, a giant spreadsheet that you had to fill out. And students just got completely disengaged. And so at some point I just turned into a guessing game. It's like, guess how long it'll take to drive at 65 miles an hour to Jupiter. And then it would just say higher or lower. It'd be like Price is Right. And when I showed this activity to uh, the teachers in Ukraine, they were like, this is ridiculous. This is a child's game. You can't, we're not going to do this in a, um, in a college classroom. It's like, all right, well, just humor me. Just, just play around with it. And for the next 10 minutes, they were discussing it. They're like, well, what do you think it is? Well, it can't possibly be this. And they started discussing, they started guessing, and then they were surprised. And then they were sharing their surprise. And then they went on to the next level. And uh, they, they got really into it. And then at the end, I was like, so what did you think? It's like, that was kind of fun. It's like, so you actually enjoyed that. Why wouldn't you want your students to do the same thing? Because you were triggering discussions and you were guessing and you were doing a lot more than just playing a children's guessing game. You were actually having really high level discussions about how to approach this. And I could see your thinking changing. And when I pointed that out to them, they're like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so I find that even simple examples like that can help change uh, recalcitrant minds. Uh, just, just something uh, simple like that. Yep. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the whole point is just bring back the fun. It's okay to have fun. Even if you, know, you are in a college setting, so let's have fun with what we're learning. We end up learning more if we're having fun than if we are doodling, trying to stay awake. <laughs> There's a reason video games are popular. It's a way of learning. There are set skills that you learn and there's no reason uh, that, that you then assemble together into the big boss fights. And there's no reason not to use those same techniques in your classroom, because I always set it up as like, I'm your big final boss fight. So you better pick up the skills so you could defeat me at the end. Excellent. I think that's a very good way of putting things. <laughs> All right. So I think we will end it there. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Today's music is Order by Coma Studio from pixabay.com. You can learn more about Sarah Hosh's and Fabia's University, Oakland University, at www.oakland.edu.
Global Without Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit. You can learn more about our various programs and help contribute to them at www.sciencevoices.org.